the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And good afternoon to you. 12th day of April, 12, 13, 14, 15. Four days to get the big check in to the big people back in Washington, D.C., just to get them brighten your Tuesday afternoon. Hey, hope you're doing well. We got a lot to talk about on tonight's program. One of the topics is going to deal with your right to speak your mind, freedom of speech. There are some say it's gotten out of hand. We need to either put some controls on what's said over the internet or at least force everybody to have to reveal their true identities. No more anonymous posting. But is that really the right solution? And what does the Constitution ultimately have to say about the subject? We'll talk about that coming up in a bit. Right now, though, I want to start with a look into what's going on at Disneyland. And I just have to begin first by saying, as we launch into this report with Brad Dacus from the Pacific Justice Institute... Is there anybody left that's surprised that Disney is not really a family-friendly company? That Disney is now and has been for probably, huh, certainly all of my recent memory, a major money-making corporation that happens to be in the business that on occasion caters to families. But any notion of this being some sort of a altruistic, pure-as-the-driven-snow, family-friendly company at all levels is clearly either a Disney employee or (laughs) really doesn't know the Disney of today. Let's find out what's going on. Brad Dacus joins us now, constitutional lawyer, founder, and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Counselor, as always, a delight to have you with us. A lot of this, of course... Disney kind of forcing their name into the news in recent days back um, back down in Florida because of some changes in the law there related to what can and cannot be said to children about such matters. We've talked about uh, gender dysphoria, things of that sort in the past. And, of course, now uh, after some pressure, Disney has suddenly found its voice, and that's getting them into even more hot water. Oh, it certainly is. Uh, you know, Craig, uh, it's um, it's now very apparent that this culture from the top down uh, is uh, pushing very dogmatically uh, the uh, you know, values and causes that are very divergent uh, from uh, the average mom and, and dad and what they feel is uh, appropriate for their children. For example, they're uh, aggressively wanting to use uh, their resources, including future films and productions, uh, to include candidates uh, with lifestyles uh, and uh, gender choices that are uh, very divergent from anyone who has a, a uh, Judeo-Christian or biblical worldview. 
And as I say, to the greatest degree, this has been a slow march in that direction for the longest time coming. I mean, I I, I suspect, and I I don't want to go for an exaggeration here, but I suspect you almost have to go to the days when dear old Walt was still with us to find Disney that had a family-friendly, family-sensitive Attitude, and I mean, every company has a right to to do business. It's a, you know, it, it's a it's a free marketplace. Uh, but of course, there can be consequences dependent upon how you conduct your business. I, as I say, I, I just at this level, I think it is astonishing that people sometimes still get surprised by the behavior of this company, given the history that they've had in recent, well, at least the last couple of decades. And I suppose at the end of the day, if people really want to be serious about this, they need to vote with their feet. But sadly, few two people do. Yeah, you're correct. And uh, this is a time for, for parents uh, who want to do what's right for their children, but also take a stand uh, to cancel their Disney subscription, uh, you know, their streaming Disney programming, um, and also uh, to uh, to really think twice about uh, having your children watch any of the, the new Disney uh, movies or video productions, uh, and also even to, to rethink, uh, you know, attending these amusement parks, uh, because they are becoming very, very dogmatic. You know, historically, uh, they, you know, they've always said, you know, when you enter it, it says, you know, good morning, you know, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Well, they're going to stop saying that, because they think that that's, somehow offensive to those who may not know what their gender is. I mean, it's just really foolhardy uh, and extreme. The, the characters that they promise to bring into their future uh, videos and films, uh, the, the, the training and indo- indoctrination training they're requiring for all employees. In fact, some employees have complained that uh, it's become actually a real hostile work environment uh, for them if they believe in uh, any kind of traditional values at all. Uh, or in, are in the norm and in the mainstream, uh, those people are nearly not, uh, you know, welcome or treated well uh, at Disney and um, are uh, forced to be silent or 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 to completely, uh, you know, lose their job. Yeah, and you know that that's uh, that's sad because uh, you know that that's that's forcing the employees to have to essentially uh, comply with a company policy that they don't feel comfortable with, and this is being handed down by the same company that used to take the position that if you showed up to work with a, a beard or a mustache, uh, you know e- either the beard and mustache went or you went. So <laughs> it really shows right. how far they've come, and not in a good way. Right. I, if Walt Disney was alive today, uh, without question, he would be shaking his head, and I can see him actually even wondering whether or not it, uh, you know, he should have built Disneyland to begin with, uh, you know, because of of the turn that it's taking in such a direction that's so hostile uh, to the kind of Disney that he envisioned, uh, one that was friendly and not hostile to to parents' rights, uh, not hostile to uh, to the traditional family or people who had traditional beliefs. Um, this is very different, uh, a very different Disney, and it's from the top, and it's permeating to the organization. Uh, you know, there are recent uh, outfront objections to Florida's law that simply protects kid, kids from kindergarten through third grade in public schools from being taught and exposed to uh, sexuality um, and sexual identity issues. We're just talking kindergarten through third grade. 
so, you know, they have a problem with that. If they have a problem with that, then that tells you a lot about how very extreme and dangerous Disney has become. And it's, it's unfortunate, but uh, parents need to wake up and take the appropriate actions, not only for their children, but also to send a message to Disney uh, that this is unacceptable and it will not be uh, financially uh, supported by, by the consumer. And I know we, we, we talk about boycotts off and on, and, you know, sometimes I'm convinced that voting with your feet is a successful way of sending a message. Um, but, you know, there needs to be a sense of, sense, sense of consistency about all of that. And, and, and sadly, some people are willing to, you know, be upset by the way Disney behaves and yet happy to plan a vacation tomorrow. What's the best approach here? I mean, it, doesn't it have to be a united front to effectively get the message across to them? Yeah, generally you're right, and also this involves uh, pastors, uh, you know, to address this from behind the pulpit. Uh, this needs to be, you know, dealt with on, on from multiple angles, and uh, you know, and parents and families just need to really sit down and say, you know, is this the environment? I mean, there are things that are, that are taking place in Disney, uh, like you know, you know, rainbow-colored little outfits for little children and toddlers, okay, being sold at Disney. Parents need to, need to understand this is not the extent of it. This is just the beginning, and what's really best for their children. And they also need to look at other alternatives. There's Universal Studios. There's Knott's Berry Farm. There's uh, amusement parks all across the nation. Uh, Disney has a charm to it, but that charm is quickly waning. And uh, it's time for, for parents to pragmatically really uh, address what's best for their kids. Of course, the Disney Channel is extremely dangerous. They're going to start, they just announced they're going to start commercials with a, tra- a parent of a transgender child putting on, you know, giving this heart-wrenching story uh, implying that, um, you know, that it's, it, that it's uh, you know, a direction that is very divergent from what the studies show uh, with regards to uh, the end result of, um, of, that, of that direction. The average transgender will not live to see the thir- their 30th birthday, and that's because of internal depression and suicide because of the unresolved gender identity dysphoria, and that's that's what uh, the studies show, and it's, it's why we as Christians need to have compassion and understanding, a tremendous compassion and understanding, but at the same time, uh, we also need to be responsible for our children and for the, uh, our society and the direction that it's encouraging. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. 515 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, it uh, sort of ended before it even began. Elon Musk has now declined to join Twitter's board of directors. The social media company's CEO said this past weekend that Elon Musk will remain the largest shareholder of Twitter. The company will also remain open to his input. Part of that input early on was suggesting that Donald Trump needed to be reinstated on the account or on the um, on the platform, and that there should be greater openness in terms of freedom of speech. It raises a number of interesting questions, not least of which, of course, is whether or not a private company can, in fact, exercise restrictions on freedom of speech on a platform that they operate, own, and control. Part of this, of course, influenced by Section 230 of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. 
but the broader questions related to freedom of speech. And are there differences when it comes to what a company can control versus what a government controls vis-a-vis First Amendment? And ultimately, could we make the Internet happier, more friendly, if there was less negative speech? Probably yes. But then again, it raises questions in terms of, well, if this is sort of the final frontier, so to speak, on freedom of speech, isn't it important to make sure that we protect it at all costs? Well, this is a sticky wicket, to be sure, at multiple layers, so we're going to call in our authority. He's an attorney, a CPA, best-selling author. He is the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in America today, and he's a constitutional historian. Bob Zadek joins us now with some insights. And as always, Robert, a privilege to have you join us. This is interesting. It raises a lot of questions, and perhaps uh, it also demonstrates that a lot of Americans don't fully, completely understand what the First Amendment is and who it refers to specifically. So kind of break things down, if you would, in this wild west of opinions on the Internet. It's kind of interesting because um, freedom of speech, as basic as it is, is often misunderstood. It is either um, given too much power or not enough power. I can recall when um, a specific incident, uh, when some popular Hollywood personality, uh, I think it was Susan Sarandon, took a a left-wing position that was pretty out there. And um, a lot of people in the center and on the right were disappointed in her point of view. And they said, okay, let's punish her. Let's not patronize her movies. We'll show her, and she will suffer. And she complained bitterly, and she's not alone, so I'm using her not as Susan Sarandon, but as representative of many people who have taken the same position. She complained that by punishing her at the box office, we were impairing her freedom of speech. Well, of course, she had it all, not only backwards, but all twisted up in a confusing knot. Freedom of speech merely, although it's powerful, it appears, of course, in the First Amendment to the Constitution, uh, Amendment Number 1 in the Bill of Rights, which states, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, that government... And government initially meant the federal government, but it was later extended through the 14th Amendment to the states. But government cannot, in general, prevent speech. Now, that's not universal, but it's almost universal. There are exceptions, of course, slander, um, fomenting um uh, rioting and the like. We all know just from being informed what the general, <laughs> excuse me, exceptions are. But in general, there cannot be what is called prior restraint. You cannot be prevented from speaking. You might have consequences to what you said. It might violate a statute, rarely, but it might. It, but that's not prior restraint. That doesn't say the government can say, 
you are forbidden from even saying it. The only can react after you have said it. But it is a limitation on government. Now, you teed up the issue perfectly, Craig, when you said, and you picked uh, Twitter, and I believe you mentioned Facebook, if not, I'll mention it, and other social media, there has been a complaint uh, by many in the public, more so on the right than on the left, but not restricted or limited to those on the right. But there are complaints that Facebook and Twitter are censoring speech. And we remember probably the most glaring example, because it was proven to be so accurate, was the kerfuffle about the Hunter Biden laptop during right in the middle of the presidential campaign, when you wouldn't have to use that much imagination to conclude that had Twitter and Facebook not suppressed the story of the Hunter Biden laptop and its contents, that the election might have gone a different way. If that's even possible, then that's serious stuff if we have a private company with that much power over the election. But the question is, assuming they did censor, was that illegal? And the answer from your introduction of the topic is clearly no. It's not illegal per se, because the limitation on censorship is a limitation on government actor, not private actors. Facebook, Twitter, etc., are private actors, and they are free to do with their property whatever they wish. Although many people are suggesting that it's time to give that a little more serious thought, and there is an active discussion, excuse me, on both sides as to whether or not if we start with the premise that Twitter and Facebook are free to censor, if we start there, as we must, then the interesting question is, should that be changed? Because it can be changed. Should that be changed, and should somebody, probably government, act as some kind of a super censor to make sure that the content that Twitter and Facebook carry is comports with law. And that's a discussion the public is having right now. The jury is by all means out. We can get into the Section 230 if you, issue if you wish. But right now, the law is pretty clear. Facebook and Twitter can do what they want. And the serious conversation is, yes, that is the law. But should it be the law? And that's a fascinating conversation. And certainly I know there are some people that are very upset by this. They feel as if the First Amendment rights provided by the Constitution should not only enforce a a prohibition of government from prohibiting us from exercising freedom of speech, but any public platform. Of course, the the challenge there becomes, okay, if you open it up that way, you can exercise your freedom of speech on somebody else's platform. Does that extend a level of liability for, for example, a violation of a a slander statute that might wind you up on the receiving end of a civil lawsuit? So because you said it and it's on somebody else's platform, do they have an obligation to censor that, or do they suddenly become at risk for your 
personal thoughts. Well, this is, of course, in part what Section 230 attempted to address by essentially stating that, no, that platform has no culpability whatsoever. Well, if you're trying to um, trying to recover damages, you want to go after the deep pockets, and that may, may, may not just be little old you sitting at home at midnight uh, making negative comments about someone on, on Twitter or Facebook, but that could be Twitter or Facebook. It has plenty of money to defend themselves and help to write the check should they lose the lawsuit. You see how many layers are involved here, how complicated all of this gets. And there's another issue here, too, and that is differentiating between a private real citizen expressing his or her opinion versus many of these fake accounts. These are non-existing people that go out, say things on a bot type platform or basis, rather, and and it's not a real person. So we need to think, I think, if we're, if we're concerned about much of what we see posted and posted anonymously on the Internet, part of the discussion perhaps also needs to include um, differentiating between fake accounts versus real accounts. And if we suddenly start saying, okay, we're going to eliminate the fake accounts and we have to clearly identify who we are, not some online Twitter handle, not some CB-style handle, for those of you old enough to remember that, but your real name. And if so, is that not too wrought with potential pitfalls? We're going to talk about that next. Bob Zadek is with us tonight. He's an attorney, a CPA, constitutional historian, best-selling author, and he hosts the Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. here locally in the San Francisco Bay region on 860 AM, The Answer, coincidentally, our sister station. If you'd like to find out more about Bob, his work, his books, his guests, check him out online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take a time out, come back with more of the Sticky Wicket <laughs> as this edition of Lifeline continues. The following is not an actor, but a real-life story from Trinity Debt Management. The credit card debt happened when my daughter was born. I was using one credit card account to roll over into another credit card account, and it was snowballing. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-936-5496. When I first called Trinity, the representative understood the need based on the situation. They were great people to work with. From the first phone call that I made, they had me on a track to mitigate the credit card debt. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. Working with Trinity gave me the ability to save thousands of dollars. My name's Doug, and thanks to Trinity, I'm debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-936-5496. That's 1-800-936-5496. I'm about to compare a pepper shaker to a cash-out refinance. Hang with me. You know when you're at a restaurant and they ask, would you like some fresh ground pepper? And then they crank that giant tube, but almost nothing comes out? For me, only a certain amount of time is socially acceptable to wait. I know that getting that pepper out might make my life better, but it just seems too impossible. And that's what we hear people say about the cash-out refinance. People realize that the value of their home has gone up like hot pepper the last few years leaving all this extra money sitting inside their home. But is it too hard to get out? It's Ryan from United Faith Mortgage. If you're interested in cashing out the extra pepper in your home, we're good at doing all the work while you just sit back and relax. And often, 
your mortgage payment and years in the loan will stay the same. If you'd like to hear about your options, we are United, United Faith Mortgage. mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Meadow Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to animalistconsumeraccess.org. Corporate Animalist number 1330. Equal housing lender. I license in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, North Dakota, South Dakota, or Utah. Hi there, Jordan Michaels here. Have you ever noticed in buying new towels that they can look beautiful, be soft and fluffy, but they're hardly absorbent? And isn't that the whole purpose of a towel? You know, I think we'd all agree we want a towel that looks good and feels great and works. Well, my pillow inventor Mike Lindell found the best towel company right here in America that gives everything you want in a good towel. It's made with good old US of A cotton. Right now, you can get such a great deal on these my pillow towels. I have a set of my own, so I know firsthand how great they are. Six-piece set includes two bath, two hand towels, two washcloths for what was normally one hundred nine dollars and ninety-nine cents. And now, get this. When you get out of the shower and dry off, boy, this is a towel you're going to want to reach for. Go to MyPillow.com, click the new radio listener specials, enter the promo code KFAX or call 800-479-1790. MyPillow.com, use that promo code KFAX. What is school choice and why is it important? Every child is unique and each learns differently. Some might succeed at the local public school, while many others will do better in a private, Christ-centered environment. School Choice allows every family to select the educational options that best fit their children, which is why for the 11th year running, KFAX again offers families our back-to-school half-off tuition program. We understand how costly a quality education can be, so we've partnered with some of the most prestigious Christian schools throughout the Bay Area to offer half-off tuition for the coming fall term. The program applies to families enrolling a child for the first time. Nearly 300 Bay Area families have benefited from half-off tuition vouchers. Why not yours? Discover how a biblically-based education can radically change your child's life. For all the details and a map of participating schools, visit kfax.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our discussion. Syndicated talk show host and author Bob Zadek with us tonight, uniquely qualified to shed some light, particularly on the constitutional aspects of this broader question. We talk about First Amendment rights, certainly the Constitution could never have predicted the existence of this thing we call the Internet today. It it does, however, though, uh, provide for what existed at the time, freedom of the press, to make sure that uh, the press is unencumbered by the influence of government, likely individuals as well, have an opportunity to express their minds without fear of government reprisal. Um, But that doesn't extend to private companies, which is where things get a little bit layered and a little bit complicated here. And then moreover, as we look at calls to say, well, okay, if people are going to have a right to say whatever they want, um, we need to make sure that the platform hosting such opinions is protected. Okay, Section 230 of the 1996 Telecom Act accomplishes that. But it doesn't prevent the bad behavior. And could things change if folks were forced to use their real name and not post um, anonymously. And, and, and were that case, could they become more polite and less hostile? Well, maybe so, but I have to wonder, Bob, uh, if that also would have a significant chilling effect 
on free speech, should people begin to think that if they voice an opinion, that could have repercussions in other fashions? Maybe not directly related to, but, you know, what's to prevent an employer who doesn't like the way you think politically and the way you express yourself on Facebook from not giving you that promotion or from deciding that it's time for layoffs and you're top of the list? Well, of course, it's it's very hard to maintain your rights, and it's often quite important to maintain anonymity. Uh, we have, I think, taken it for granted in so much of our interactions with people. Um, being anonymous and expressing a view without identifying yourself has been part of our legal system going back to way before the colonies were founded. It was a rich tradition in England, and it is a rich tradition in this, co- in this country. Some of your listeners, probably most, will recall that the Federalist Papers, which were a series of 80-odd essays written in the New York media uh, in order to encourage support for ratification of the Constitution, the Federalist Papers were written collectively, mostly by Hamilton, a lot by Madison, and a few by John Jay. And those Federalist Papers, as important as they were, and as brilliantly written as they were, were all written anonymously. Although most people knew who the writers were, but nevertheless, it was the rich tradition to write anonymously for whatever reason. Um, And that has been part of our uh, public discourse for a long time. Uh, The anonymity has recently started to come under attack. Because, after all, the Supreme Court had some has never really said there is an absolute right to anonymity as part of the uh, free speech protections we are awarded. Uh, Many specific cases have found it, and interestingly enough, two organizations that both, in both organizations, has anonymity been protected by the Supreme Court are, believe it or not, the NAACP and the Ku Klux Klan. Not in the same case, of course. In the NAACP case, uh, NAACP was active in the civil rights movement in the 60s. The state of Alabama, in order to discourage that activity and to out the donors to the NAACP, through legislation, demanded the NAACP disclose the supporters and the membership of the NAACP at Alabama. And NAACP refused because there was danger of reprisal. And the issue went to the U.S. Supreme Court, which held that there is a right to be anonymous if you are a donor to an organization that is politically active. So the Supreme Court has supported that. There was also an attempt to make it illegal to wear masks to punish the KKK. And that was held to be unconstitutional. You had a right to wear all other things being equal, you had a right to wear a mask in public. 
I don't recall if that case was cited when I used to watch The Lone Ranger on television, but it could have been. But The Lone Ranger had his or her First Amendment protections as well. So anonymity is a very interesting right. And um, when it comes to publication on Twitter and Facebook, Twitter and Facebook do not allow anonymous postings. But it's their right as a uh, private organization. The question, of course, is, is that a good idea? Is that good or bad for society? Which, after all, is the discussion we are having now. So this issue of anonymity is, uh, is still up for grabs. Remember all the whistleblower statutes that protect anonymity to encourage whistleblowers. That sounds like a good thing to me. But we have never had... <coughs> There's no national rule on anonymity, which is really quite interesting, given the fact that the country has, we have had our Constitution for 240-odd years, and this issue has never been ultimately resolved. And, of course, what's problematic about this is, at one level, yeah, it may make for a more friendly experience online. Folks may perhaps think twice. I think that, for example, uh, the way we will scream and yell at each other through the closed car window when somebody cuts in front of us is probably very different behavior when somebody cuts in front of us, say, at the bank or the grocery store. Uh, That said, while it might be more polite and less hostile, doesn't removing anonymity also form, in a sense, a means of controlling speech? Because if suddenly you think that your friends, your neighbors, your employer can connect you to your opinions, uh, as I kind of suggested a moment ago, um, this could not only put you at, at potential risk for reprisals of one sort or another, but the broader issue at hand here is all of a sudden if you lose your anonymity, and you are posting comments on Facebook or Twitter, somebody doesn't like it, they know exactly who you are, what's to prevent them from showing up at your house one day and deciding to wallop you one good, or at the very least make some threats in your direction, realizing, of course, all of that is illegal, but that hasn't stopped people before, and all of a sudden now it winds up having just the opposite effect. We're trying to encourage proper freedom of speech that doesn't get involved in being too, too nasty. And yet, at the end of the day, if we if we lose our anonymity, don't we ultimately see that have a chilling effect on our freedom of speech? Greg, uh, the losing anonymity is so interesting in light of technological advances. To give one example to um, explain my point, uh, there was a time that local governments... Uh, required those who were making political solicitations door-to-door, requesting signatures on petitions, that they wear a name tag indicating who they are because they wanted to discourage solicitations. And it has been held that form of regulation is illegal. You're allowed to solicit political signatures uh, anonymously, and you can't be required to disclose your name. And that's the law. But now, Craig, we have facial recognition. I dare say a fair percentage of our listeners have a ring doorbell or similar product. A ring doorbell tells you, gives you a picture of who's at your front door. There is available, commercially available, 
databases that will match a face with millions and millions of people whose face is on file in public databases. That means, Craig, although one cannot require a person who is soliciting to identify themselves, your ring doorbell will do it for you. Somebody will ring the door, and my ring doorbell will show an image on my phone of who's at the door and their name, which it'll access to a publicly available database. So do we even have anonymity given facial recognition and the power and the speed by which they operate? Do we, are we going to reach a point that everybody, we've been fighting about masks and COVID and all that stuff, is everybody going to walk around with a hood over their head? Because otherwise, everybody will be able to know with their cell phone who they are. You could lift up your cell phone, aim it at my face as I walk by, and before I leave you and walk past you, you'll know my name. Kind of scary, Craig. All of that is part of the topic of anonymity. How much do we value just not having anybody know who we are. That may be put to the test. And I think it's a frightening thought in the potentiality of losing that anonymity because of the inherent risks, as you suggest. And we're already watching it disappear moment by moment, inch by inch in this country today, whether it's the increased presence of so-called CCTV, as the British call it, uh, closed-circuit television cameras that can follow our every move, to license plate readers that know where we've traveled to, to even the ability of your cell phone to track through triangulation your whereabouts at any given time. You know, the reality is that we are losing more and more aspects of our privacy. Some argue as we lose more privacy, we lose more of our own personal identity. And eventually, this slow erosion could wind up one day having the proverbial frog in the kettle impact, meaning that we wake up and we realize one day that, wow, we've lost an awful lot. And now to try to claw it all back, I'm afraid there are aspects of all of this that are much like the feather pillow. Rip it open, you'll never get all the feathers stuffed back in once again. Believe me. We'll take a time out. We'll come back to more thoughts, more insights. Syndicated talk show host, constitutional historian, best-selling author, Bob Zadek with us. His program, The Bob Zadek Show, heard locally Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Bob always has fascinating, compelling guests discussing compelling topics of great importance to you and life here in the Bay Area and America. Check him out online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com, 546. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our discussion. We're talking about intricate details related to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, what that looks like not only in the public square but the broader electronic public square. And as much as some folks get frustrated by this idea that, well, um, you know, anonymously people are essentially allowed to get away with some terrible things and yet platforms do 
exercise some modicum of control over what can and cannot be said. If you violate their terms of service or terms of use, they can boot you off. People say, well, I don't feel comfortable with that. But, you know, at the end of the day, as Bob Zadek is helping us to understand, the First Amendment of the Constitution protects us from intrusion or repercussions of government trying to step in and uh, limit our freedom of speech, our freedom of expression. But those same protections do not extend to private companies. Don't believe me? Call trying the, uh, Try calling this radio program and saying something outlandish and crazy on the air. I guarantee you we'll take you off the air because we have a right and a responsibility to protect the license that we have that allows us to operate this radio station, and we want to make sure that our programming content is not offensive to uh, the listeners out there. So any company that exercises that right is not necessarily violating your First Amendment rights They're simply exercising their rights as a private company to do so. But it does raise lots of questions. And, and Bob, as I suggested, it might be nice to say, well, we can can prevent a lot of this nonsense if we just force everybody to reveal their true identity. But as you've pointed out, there's a long history of protecting um, anonymity. And the other issue here, too, is the idea that that could not only have a chilling effect on freedom of speech, but also open up the door to people easily making threats. If they know who you are, they can find where you are. And that could be tremendously problematic. How do you think this whole debate, even as we've seen a lot of give and take going back and forth related to Section 230 of the 96 Telecom Act, how do you think all of this eventually is going to play out? Does does the Congress need to come in and, and create another addendum that clarifies constitutionally what our rights are in this electronic wild west of ours? It's interesting, Craig, and I would, if I may, refer your listeners to a debate that was just held at an organization, Reason Magazine sponsors the SOHO, S-O-H-O, forums, which are um, available online, uh, recorded. They are a debate, high-level, high-level, I assure you, debates uh, between scholars on important issues and the very last SOHO forum debate available wherever podcasts are was a debate between Robbie Sobe from Reason Magazine who felt there was no need whatever for government regulation of the um, social media platforms. Robbie is a young, very savvy media reporter. And taking the opposite point of view was Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt is a psychology professor, um, libertarian-ish sometimes, brilliant uh, scholar who feels that the damage, especially to teenagers, from social media uh, requires some regulation, and the downside of increased government regulation on a place that is right now somewhat free of regulation is justified to protect teenagers. So the audience can enjoy a one-hour, highly informed debate by just listening to that, and I wanted to just give that a shout-out. As to your question, wow, do I have concern about allowing 
government to be the ultimate center of what happens in social media. I am scared to death that the political process is almost universally unable to do something that important and to do it free of politics. So my view is perhaps there is a need, but if ever there was a case of the, any imaginable cure being worse than the illness, that's it. The cure of government regulation of social media has to be worse than the danger which it poses. And after all, and I, I can't tell whether the marketplace will adjust uh, and will punish Facebook and Twitter for their allowing their political points of view to affect the availability of social media to those who have a different point of view. Uh, I can't suppress my own faith in the marketplace. After all, you may have read that uh, Facebook's revenue is on a steep, steep decline. In other words, their product is starting to be unappealing to people. Um, and so the market may very well punish Facebook for being a censor. Who can tell? But you've asked for my opinion. I, I have to come down against government regulation just because I look at who's in government and I say, do I want them regulating what information I'm allowed to receive? And I have to say no. Yeah, I have to concur with you on that. And again, as you've aptly pointed out, um, there are many countries, we're witnessing some of it going on today in places like Russia where you offer an opinion and if it's done, that seems to be contrarian to um, what um, those in charge of the government say or think. Um, that kind of dissent can result in being locked up. It can result in being tortured for your opinions and beliefs. It happens, and don't ever think it can't happen here, because I think we've hopefully begun to learn just how potentially fragile democracy is over the last four or five years. So with all of this, we invite you to tune in to Bob Zadek's program. He goes into these issues and others in a far deeper fashion. Every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, Bob, newsmakers and uh, opinion shapers, check him out. The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer, online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. 6 o'clock from KFAX. Stay tuned. Coming up next, we've got a great conversation lined up for you. My special guest today, Pastor Earl Bullen, as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.